I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. for the season finale of House of the Dragon. My name is Chris Ryan, and I now work at the Dragon Valet parking at Storm's End. There's a lot of room for promotion. Joining me as always is Ringer Senior Staff Writer Joanna Robinson and Corliss Valerian's personal trainer, Mallory Rubin. The TV 12 method works. <laughs> What's up, you two? What an amazing uh, season finale, right? Right? Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, Chris. Yeah. I'm so delighted you you popped the old sapphire into your eye hole for this recording <laughs> to make it a real formal event. Uh, um, Mallory, Joe, it's fantastic to see you. Uh, here we are on Sunday night in America. We have a new National League champion. We have a new uh, <laughs> Civil War brewing. Wow. In, yeah. uh, what a day for you. In Westeros. And so uh, let's start big picture. Joanna, was that a satisfying finale for you? I thought so. Yeah. I've I have like some questions, but overall, I thought in terms of like delivering a big spectacle that also has real human emotional stakes to it, like this is this is the ideal combo for a Thrones episode. Yeah, Mel, agreed. I, uh, I I think I probably have the same couple of questions and, and notes <laughs> as Joe does, <laughs> but overall, I thought that was really strong and. Honestly, it's been a minute since my heart was racing quite like that, watching an hour of TV, which might have something to do with watching it in real time and then immediately coming to pod about it. But the caliber of the performances and that blend of the highly intimate human stakes and the awe-inspiring only throne-style spectacle having all of that here in the finale and the, the 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 dual finale nature that we now see in the season with the Green Council, Green-centric penultimate episode and the Black Council, Rhaenyra-centric finale just feels like a more cohesive conclusion to the season now after seeing this. Look who dropped a segue. It's Mallory. <laughs> can we pick it up for you? Because my next question, Mal, if we can go a little bit like TV structural, is I was curious whether for the two of you that worked. So obviously, in some ways, you could look at episode eight as the penultimate episode. That was uh, obviously when uh, Viserys passes away. It's um, it's the moment the families are still together. So we get to see all these characters interacting. Uh, it's got a lot of drama, but... The last two episodes sort of function as two sides of one finale in a lot of ways. We've got the the greens one and the blacks one, as you mentioned, Mal. Joe, did you did you like the way that that was handled by the the creative side here uh, by the showrunners? Yeah, I was really curious if that's what we were going to get after the entirely green centric episode last week, and like a little green seeped in here, right? A auto, 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 yeah. auto made a cameo. Um, <laughs> But, you know, Alicent is only present in the form of a, you know, a, a page ripped out of a book many years ago. What a message to send. What a thing to hold on to. Um, and I I liked that moment to really consider these two women and the parallels between their positions. And it helps us really 
and analyze and understand the differences in their characters, but also the very similar positions that they're put in here. Um, in the inside the uh, episode interview, Miguel Zapashnik called them sister episodes, uh, nine and ten. So yeah, just uh, that's definitely how they were thinking. Signing of them. off. This has been Miss Miguel Zapashnik. <laughs> my last, my last missive to you. Yeah. Uh, I just want to know Talia the third sister in this this case. (laughs) Yeah, I I was going to bring up Talia. No, I just want to note for the record that if, you know, years in the future, after our many hours of podcasting together, either of you or Steve or Arjuna or anyone from our beautiful Ringerverse family sends me a little like Zoom audio clip, something like that. To, to hearken back yeah. to all of our time together, my emotional response will hinge on whether or not you've usurped my throne. No, so I, that'll, I, de- I will, that'll depend. I'm going to definitely on how do that. It Sending me. you a little clip of you being like, I couldn't do this pod without you, Chris. You're the best. <laughs> so, yeah. Remember this? All right. So we have a ton to get through. We have a ton of yeah. Um, yeah. pretty interesting, pretty uh, fascinating deviations from accepted thrones history that happened in this episode that we're going to get into. And we're also going to talk dragons. We're going to talk about my boy Luke gone too soon. So let's get into the recap, if we shall. Live from Dragonstone, the world's least likely naval strategist, Luke McBain Targaryen, is really <laughs> regretting the career, cho- career choices that others have made for him. And his mother, who knows something about having the weight of the world dumped on you at a young age, tries to soothe him. Now, I, I just want to make one note here, which is that Corliss Valerian is apparently still under the weather in the no cameras allowed wing of Driftmark Grace Memorial Hospital. <laughs> Speedy recovers, my guy. Family time comes to an end when Renice arrives via Cella Dragon to tell Rhaenyra about how her dad has finally succumbed to his decades of debilitating illness and limb loss, and Aegon yeah. has been named King of the Realm. Dame and Venera grieve Viserys in their different ways. Uh, both seem to assume he was murdered, and uh, they ask Renice why she didn't light Aegon's ass up when she had the chance. Renice yeah. has a great line. Damon's about, been reading Twitter. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great if they just shot this a week later after yeah. Twitter's reaction. All this gets put to the side when Rhaenyra unexpectedly goes into labor. There's some question as to who is calling the shots at Dragonstone, but no matter what, Damon always gets the best lines. Like most births on this show, this one does not go well. After a quick recovery for Rhaenyra and a quick funeral for her stillborn child, she is greeted by Eric, who has both the crown and a pledge of allegiance for her. We go to Rhaenyra's first war room where she is being subtly challenged by Rhaenys and overtly challenged by Damon, who seems to be doing triple duty as husband, general, and hand. Their war footing is challenged by Otto, who they meet on the same bridge where Damon was confronted years ago. Otto asks for their surrender and Damon straight up lets the Philadelphia out, calling Aegon a drunken cunt and threatening to stuff Otto's withered dick into his own mouth. I want this line clipped and put over the video of Bryce Harper celebrating on second base during game five of the NALCS. This is my fucking house. Rhaenyra asks him to put a pin in it and get back to Otto tomorrow. During a very intense conversation with Damon, during which Damon puts his hand around Rhaenyra's throat, it becomes obvious that Viserys never shared the dream of ice and fire with Dame. It also becomes obvious that Dame is a big believer in dragons and not so much in anything else. Back on Drift, Mark Corliss returns from his Kawhi Leonard-esque resk, and he wants to retire, but Rhaenys sees something in the deposed queen that she respects. Corliss decides to declare both for Rhaenyra and give the most important push alert ever. The triarchy is crushed. The Blacks hold the narrow sea. Everyone seems buoyed by this news and they decide to send some children on Dragon back to do some messaging. Seems like a flawless plan. <laughs> Luke flies to Storm's <laughs> End to convince Boros Baratheon to reaffirm his allegiance to the Blacks. 
It's a dark and stormy night. Boros Baratheon is doing his part to conserve energy and a candlelit throne room. <laughs> Who does Luke find but his old sparring partner, Aemond? It turns out the one-eyed Targ has added an unprotected draft pick of betrothment to his trade package, and Boros loves it. Loves what he hears. Luke is sent packing, but not before Eamon asks him to cut out his own eye. Funnily enough, this same thing happened to me at a bar in Boston in the late 90s. Uh, I did not have a dragon, though. Uh, Luke demures, gets on his teenage dragon's back, and flies away. Eamon chases him down, talking trash high above Storm's End. Luke has seemingly made his escape when his dragon, Arix, we're going to find out if I'm right about that, goes hot route, hot route, hot route. <laughs> and buzzes the tower on Aemon's dragon, singeing Vagar's whiskers. Vagar decides enough with this shit, and, well, she eats Luke, basically. We end the season with Rhaenyra finding out what happened to her carrier pigeon. She looks very pissed. This is why you send ravens. Wow. Chris. <laughs> Incredible. Alzheimer. That was, they're getting longer and longer. I'm glad Man. this is the last one. Of all the things we're going to miss about covering House of the Dragon, your Who recaps. Knew? High, Who knew high, this, high I, I finally found my calling. It's been a while. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess we still have to work out some kinks on the driving options for dragons, the self-driving options. Am I right to understand that Eric's and Vagar took matters into their own hands in that scene? Because they basically have in that final scene, or in that final set piece, both Luke and Eamon seem to be trying to get their dragons under control and lose control of them. Yeah. Mo a lot, most of us are not fluent in Valerian, uh, yours truly included. But a, a phrase that a lot of us know is Valadoris, right? All men must serve. And like Dora is the, like, that's the verb that they're both shouting, like, obey me, obey me to their dragons as their dragons are out of control. And this is this is the th this and maybe one other thing are the thing that book readers are have the biggest question mark about out right. of this episode because you know this is a battle that takes place in a dark and stormy night as you said or I guess mid afternoon um <laughs> over it's hard over, to tell when storms end yeah <laughs> over Shipbreakers Bay and so you only have like Amon's word for it what happened out there right because folks on shore are just squ squinting into the cloud cover seeing two dragons go at it um, but I think. So this is, you could call it a change, or if Eamon comes back and claims he did it on purpose, which is sort of what the inside the episode interview sort of implies, that he might come back and be like, yeah, I meant to do that. Um, I think what this is leaning into is that Viserys quote we got in the very first episode of the season, uh, when he says everyone, you know, and, and uh, Rhaenyra says something similar in this episode, everyone says Targaryens are closer to gods than to men, but they say that because of our dragons. Without them, we're just like everyone else. The idea that we control the dragons is an illusion. They're a power man should never have trifled with. One that brought Valyria's doom. If we don't mind our own histories, it will do the same to us. Targaryens must understand this to be king or queen. And so I think the thesis statement, <laughs> apparently, of this series is just sort of like, how can you have a uh, dragon peace? You can only have dragon wars because of the nature of dragons um, and, and the nature of people like, like a daemon who believes in taking the dragon approach to the world. You know, dreams didn't make us kings, dragons did. He believes he's fully bought in yeah. to this idea, you know, but it's... it's He's hawkish about dragons. <laughs> but even like, you know, even a from a little baby like Arax, Arax... How, whatever we want to call Luke's dragon, 
<laughs> to a veteran, a war vet like Vagar, a, a war criminal herself, Vagar. <laughs> um, you know, there's only so much a Targaryen can do on top of those beasts. So, so Mal, Joe, you know, mentioned that this is it deviates from what people thought they understood about what happened in the skies above Storm's End, right? Like that they that this was explicitly Aemon kills Luke, and now it kind of makes it seem like. Do, do you think that the show was doing a little character softening uh, of Amon? Amon? I don't know why I called him Amon. Amon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the, I think there are a couple through lines of the season that feel increasingly clear after watching that climactic, very sad and harrowing sequence. One of them is the one that Joe just mentioned this real theme of the capricious nature of dragons and the hubris of trying to control them, of thinking you can. The Viserys quote that Joe read was the one on my mind most watching that episode. And I was also thinking of the caprice of dragons who can know the mind of such a beast, which is the fire and bloodline when Aemond claims. Vagar and the other I think that this like the 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 subtle updating here of how much of this was outright intentional murder in the fire and blood account and how much of this was a mistake I think is even though these are different situations a little bit of a piece with Allison's misinterpretation of Viserys's final words and the fact that these characters cannot totally wrap their arms around a conversation, let alone a dragon, right? And the tr that really heightens the tragedy. You know, I'm curious to see, much like in the wake of episode nine, the the response to that, uh, the Allison's uh, interpretation of Viserys' final words. I'm curious to see what the response is to this Eamon thing. But I think it just makes this even more deeply, deeply sad. And, you know, if you go back and look at the passages. On the one hand, I will have your eye or your life strong. It's, yeah. There's not like a ton of wiggle room there. However, I think that the actual fight above Shipbreaker Bay is, as Joe noted, observed from afar. How can it not be? And so this is this larger through line as well of the way that history makes its, its way down across the word of mouth into the printed page into our hands as readers and viewers. So I think that there's a way that this tracks and really heightens the uh, family unit just disintegrating in front of us, a theme that is also heightened in episodes nine and 10 as these teams and factions that should be working toward common cause are constantly at odds with each other. There's a lot of human error there. And then you're trying to wrap your arms around magic. So I was trying to kind of wrap my head around this because there was part of me that felt like, so they have this story essentially laid out. It's, it's in these, these books. The, they can do a little bit in the margins to experiment or misdirect or get creative about like what happened, quote unquote. But for the most part, they they have like a, a blueprint that they have to follow. And it's interesting that the things that they have added mm. as twists or, you know, not twists, but as their own sort of uh, creations are about misunderstandings, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. And for a second, I was like, I'm not so sure I love that. It seems like a little, not haphazard, but 
bring human error into this i was like or like just like games of telephone i was like oh, is that why i watch game of thrones but then when you think about it that is how game of thrones started is fucking brand climbing up into that window you know what i mean like the game of thrones itself is propelled forward by these kinds of like you would never believe that this happened but this kid caught Jamie and Cersei and the whole thing fell apart. Or, well, or Joffrey taking Ned's head, right? Like 100%. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. In yeah. Tywin's war council, knocking over the cup and saying, there's your piece. You know, Joffrey saw to that when he decided to remove Ned Stark's head. And so exactly what is going through Aemon's mind and seeing here that he's saying no and trying to stop Vagar and seeing that little Luke cannot quite control Arax, like the, the really heart-wrenching thing is that at the end of the day, the outcome is the same. And I think that connects to another through line of Rhaenys and other characters hitting this idea in recent episodes of like, what does it matter? Which is a deeply, deeply dismaying thing to confront, especially when you have these kinds of weapons in your hand. Like, our guy, like we're all Andor heads here, right? Like our guy Luthen said, oh, yeah. you know, turning about back a lot. will be impossible. Yeah. Something yeah. like this happens and mm -hmm. whatever you intended is ultimately irrelevant. And that just makes it all the more upsetting to think of what's lost from here. And I think what's really important, speaking of good old Ned Stark, before he lost his head, you know, like there's one of my, oddly, one of my favorite lines in season one, when Varys goes to visit in the Black Cell, he talks about Rob leading mm -hmm. an army. And Ned says, Rob, he's just a boy. And like, we talked about the casting of these kids here and how it's even clearer in this show that these are children. Okay, like the, the actor playing Eamon looks a bit older, obviously. <laughs> but like, Luke looking so young, Eric's yeah. looking so young. Tiny. You know, like his little wings not being able to keep up in the storm. Like, just even when they were setting out, I was just like, pre-devastated by mm -hmm. what I was looking at. But like the idea that like, and you know, and, and Mallory brought up, Joffrey taking Ned's head, which is just such a huge, a huge thing that happened that like nobody, Cersei didn't want to happen. That wasn't right. the plan, but Joffrey's right. a boy, exactly. a boy king. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what are these, what, what happens when children are involved in these high stakes situation? A key line, I think from Fire and Blood in this passage uh, it says the tragedy that befell Lucerus Valarian at Storm's End was never, never planned, planned. Yeah. on this. All of our sources agree, right? So I think they find like when you see these decisions that they make, there's usually yeah. like a line from Fire and Blood that they definitely seized on and were like, wouldn't this make it even more, yeah. even juicier if that idea of never planned is a terrible, terrible accident that happens in the storm, you know? And to your point you made earlier, Mal, about the the idea that essentially like, you know, that this, that this, these sort of like happen happenings are what is propelling this larger mythology and this feeling like a prophecy is coming true. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that even though Allison essentially is like, oh, I heard, it, this is what Viserys said, like in his dying breath. So like we have to now name Aegon King. Otto was going to do that anyway. You yes. know, like when they get yeah. to the small capsule Absolutely. meeting, Otto's like, yeah, we've been planning this for like quite some right. time. So anyway, I just thought, I thought that was interesting to watch the show kind of break from the books, but also still be like ultimately true to the books. Well, Chris, to that last point though, that just makes me think of one of the opening notes of this finale, which was Rhaenyra saying to, to Luke, doing his classic Jon Snow, I don't want it yet again. I don't want it. We don't choose our destiny, Luke. It chooses us. And... I was on the one hand, like, 
sure that tracks because Rhaenyra is a character who has inherited the weight and burden of this prophecy from her father. And we see the way throughout this episode that the, 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 the heaviness of those words influence her to the to the point where she has to think about whether to preserve the 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 unity of the realm with those words in mind or her own life's quests and purpose but also how inherently at odds a line like that is with a story like this where characters are constantly constantly thinking about their own choices and acting in a way that challenges some sort of larger destiny often as is a quintessential fantasy story thing bringing about the very fate that they would seek to avoid through those actions. So I think that that's like a real through line here as well. Choice and destiny and how you can pursue choice and the the, the, maintain, the maintaining of agency in your own life if you think that there's this larger thing hanging over you. And obviously that's something that is going to be a wedge between many of the characters who are in theory, otherwise quite aligned. Well, I was going to say, you know what else uh, Rhaenyra says in that scene? She says that Viserys taught her how to be a, a, a leader. And I was like, did he, though? Did Wasn't he? that like our main Viserys critique? Yeah. That he didn't do that for her? No. Um, speaking of driving a wedge, and obviously it, there's a wedge between Rhaenyra and Damon. So let's talk about this fireside chat that they have. Um, Joe. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of different readings of exactly. There was a lot of ambiguity in this scene. Let's just put it that way. So obviously the the physical violence of it. Then there's also the aspect of Rhaenyra almost in a state of shock, disbelief, and a mild amusement that she she knows something that Damon doesn't about ruling yeah. and. Yeah. I thought it was a fascinating scene. I think it'll be controversial. What did you make of? When you left that scene, how much do you think Damon knew about the Song of Ice and Fire, or does he know nothing at all? I think he knew nothing at all. My so my I'm I'm feel so uncertain of my read on this scene, and I was really hoping that they would address it in the inside the episode, and they have not yet that I have seen as of recording this. So I'm curious. They, I don't think they did. Yeah, so I'm curious to see if any interviews come out that have further shed further light. I, I bet maybe, they will. <laughs> yeah, that maybe Mallory and I can chew over on Tuesday. So I will say this is the other big moment I think that people are having, uh, book readers in general or Damon fans or however you want to put it, are having out of this episode, this, this choking moment. So I'll just answer your question, which is like my read on it is that I don't think that Damon knew about the Song of Ice and Fire at all that he lashes out much the way that he lashed out before the Battle of the Stepstones, sort of like beating a messenger near to death, right? Lashes out violently um, when he understands that this is like yet another thing that Viserys has left him out of. All he ever wanted was to be Viserys' right-hand man and Viserys didn't trust him with this key piece of information. He, like, you know, these two people have just lost a child They've lost Viserys. They're in this like extreme. I'm not making any excuses for anyone, sure. but like this is this is the stew that they're all cooking in, right? And I think that I love that little sneer from Rhaenyra, that little chuckle sneer from her, of like, oh, you didn't even know. Um, the the fracture that they're trying to show us in this marriage, where they each, um, I thought it was really interesting on the inside of the episode where they were talking about how basically Rhaenyra has some Daemon Targaryen in her, but when push comes to shove, when the crown goes on her head, she's more her father than she is her husband or uncle. Which is and confirmed like, even more when she's like, I I, I share this vision now. And right. he's just like, oh, great. So I married Viserys. 
Uh, right. And he's like, I was so frustrated for so long by how Viserys, you know, ran the realm. And I find I thought I, I was marrying another dragon. Like, I thought we were going to be two dragons together and do this. And I'm just back with my brother again. The fuck? And, um, you know, what comes next is uh, awful. But I think that's what, you know, the wheels that are turning his head. What do you think, Mallory? Yeah. You know, obviously an incredibly upsetting scene that I am still processing. I, I I certainly took note of the fact that Damon's general position in that exchange and also across the episode is the exact inverse of what Viserys said to Alicent in front of the fire in episode three during the hunt when he said, what is the power of a dragon against the power of prophecy? Damon is flipping that completely. What is the power of prophecy against the power of dragons? And that is inherent to his worldview and the very Targaryen-centric nature of his outlook. Thinking back to like the confrontations that Daemon and Viserys had in the throne room in episodes one and two, I'm your brother, the blood of the dragon runs thick. You are the dragon. Your word is truth and law. This is the entirety of how Damon thinks about himself and his role in the world, often because it's the only thing that he's had to latch on to when he's felt cast aside or left out. And I think, Joe, what you said about this, this sense of, of feeling outside yet again of Viserys's most sacred inner life and truth, uh, certainly not the, the excusing what he does, which is horrific, but absolutely seemed to be propelling his behavior there. And... I mean, David killed his wife, so like it, it made sense, con- like con- character consistency wise to me for sure. I think there's some people who had the read. It's similar to sort of like Jamie Lannister, where you're like, I think some people were tracking, hoping to track a cleaner arc with Damon. Yeah. That's not yeah. who Damon is. But I think people are like, okay, now he's with Rhaenyra. Now he's like where he's meant to be. Oh, it's going to be different now. But like, you know, just like with Jamie Lannister, like we about like, you know, we don't arc cleanly. We, we, we slide back and forth on scales and stuff like that. So I think, I think he was happy to be in service to her, which is what we saw in episode eight until he understand, understood that like what they wanted they were at complete cross purposes. Yeah. And it's similar similar to, I mean, it's meant to be an overt reflection of the Otto Allison's fracture in last week's episode, you know, where we're watching Otto's like, hey, Allison, you and I are in this game together. And then when they have their split over, do we push forward to war and kill Rhaenyra or do we try to do this as peaceably as possible? And that's the exact same split that we're seeing here. We're seeing, you know, and it's not, an accident that we're seeing two men pushing towards something and these two women trying to hold on to like the tattered remains of their bond and their friendship and peace. And again, that's a, that's a different interpretation of than what's in fire and blood, but I think it's a really interesting one. Yeah. I mean, it it seems like this characters in various points, like I mentioned with Eamon, he's getting, is he getting softened a little? Was it Allison somewhat softened and like towards the end of the season versus the way she's sort of depicted in fire and blood? Yeah. All of them, Rhaenyra too, like Rhaenyra in Fire and Blood in this episode, she's like, they stole my crown, fuck them, kill them. Like, right, you know, it doesn't take, I mean, I imagine that's more of what we're going to see from her after that incredible face that Emma Darcy pulls at the end of this episode, that that is what we're going to see kicking off next season from um, Rhaenyra. And Emma Darcy said in the inside of the episode, you know, like everything changes, of course, like Luke dies, everything changes for Rhaenyra. But 
the Rhaenyra that we get in Fire and Blood is ready to go to war immediately. You know what I mean? So this inside the marriage fissure is a show invention. And I think it's an interesting parallel with that Allison Otto fissure. Yeah, I think that the parallel there is is strong and and clear across these two episodes. I always okay. So Chris, what you said a minute ago about how you know Damon killed his wife, and it's only a couple episodes ago that he's uttering aloud, "We're all ca- capable of depravity," and has done like a lot of hideous things, right? So I think we all agree that it's not a shock that for Damon's character that this character is capable of doing something. No, it's horrific. that he's doing it to Rhaenyra. Yeah. Right. It's inside of their relationship. But also, I think I do always, even if it tracks with his larger nature and presentation in the text, I always have a little bit of a hard time when inside of the televised Thrones verse, they heighten or increase some sort of domestic violence or in in other cases, in other episodes of the past, like sexual violence, when that's not there on the, on the page. That always... Is a is a difficult thing to to understand, and so like Joe said, I'm eager to hear more of the thinking of of why specifically that felt like the choice to make with Damon in that moment. More broadly, I think like what Joe said about the fact that the men inside of these respective camps and alliances are 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 the ones who are advocating for a more violent course. And even for Damon, like there, there are so many lines in this episode that are pulled right from fire and blood, much more so than in any other episode of the season. Is the, withered, the withered cock one pulled from fire and blood? Alas, no. Alas, Sadly not. No. That was, that's an original one. That's a, a, a Matt Smith original? Okay. <laughs> but like the line that Damon has in this episode about how it's hard for a person to kill a dragon, but dragons can kill dragons. It's a line right from Fire and Blood, but the meaning and the intent behind it is inverted. And the text, he uses it to say, let's like hit pause here before we send our dragons out to war. Damon does that? Yes. Let's go recruit. Let's win other houses to our cause. Let's figure out how we can lock down a a certain stronghold in a key location, but let's not be rash with with the dragon math. And so I think that like heightening that patriarchy, it made me think too of a, a, a moment like his conversations with Lena and Pentos, where we see him reading, reading, learning about this Valerian history and Targaryen history, which I assume is fueling Dragon his song lullabies. to Old Vermithor, <laughs> yeah, which I'm yeah. interested to talk about soon. But like, what was one of the things that he said to Lena in that episode? He was talking about how they had no place that they belonged and how it was also a relief to him to be rid of the politicking. And I think that part of what Damon understands to be true about his himself is that this kind of world brings out the worst in him. Yeah. That this sort of politicking mm-hmm. awakens yeah. the darkness inside of him. And that's true for a lot of these characters. It's not always the thing that they truly desire or want. When Allison hands that page over, there's a part of that that's certainly sincere, the warmth and, and love that she still holds for Rhaenyra. And then there's a part of that that is totally warped by the campaign that all of these characters are waging. And that's ultimately what this story is about. Damon really is the the manifestation of the Bugs Bunny, Lord forgive me, I'm about to go back to the old me meme. But like, <laughs> I, Joe, I wanted to mention it in a, a different scene yeah. in this episode just to kind of keep throwing our arms around the whole thing. Because I don't think that you can separate the choking scene from the the labor scene. Um, and you're mentioning Lena Mallory. So Lena obviously dies in childbirth, but also by her own dragon hand, I guess. Uh, 
And I was very, very curious what you two thought of Damon's uh, lack of inattentiveness to, to Rhaenyra during that whole moment and whether or not we should read that as callousness or fear and, and being frozen by on his part. I also thought it was very interesting that he did not seem to have much command of the table of people around him who were kind of like, do you want to go check on your wife? Like, you, like, we don't have to do this right this second. You don't have to go to the Riverlands right now. Like, what did you, what did you think of that, Joe? I thought it was really interesting. I like to to Mal's point earlier, like usually when we prep for these episodes, I will copy into a document like the relevant passages from Fire and Blood. And usually it's just like a handful. This is like pages and pages and pages. It's like, you know, and I think it's because this sequence of the book has a lot more dialogue than other sequences in the book. So full passages are airlifted into dialogue into this episode. But I so I was looking at the lengthy passage of this horrific labor that Rhaenyra goes into, and Damon's name is not mentioned once in that whole stretch. And so I was like, because I was looking, I was like, okay, was he there in the book? And not, you know, I was like, no, his name isn't even mentioned. So it's not a question or an issue. He's not even like really involved in any of it in the book. I think the most charitable read is that this is some sort of like Lena, uh, you know, trauma layover. But like um, he has... Rhaenyra has had two children with him since then in the in the intervening time, um, not coming early and and not so alarmingly as as this one does. Um, but it is it is incredibly callous. It's like callous is actually a gentle, you know, it's horrific that he is plotting a war while she's screaming. That's a line from Fire and Blood that screams are echoing around Dragonstone as she's like going into labor. But like at the fact that again, I don't think that. Damon wants to snatch the throne from anyone, but it there is a little bit of that in this episode because I read that more as like he envisions a. I mean, he's not he's so similar to Otto in so many ways, but that he basically envisions a, a world in which like he is king in in name in everything but name, you know, and that Rhaenyra is like essentially that they are in lockstep on how they want to rule the world, and then when she starts to deviate from that at all like that he's he but he I guess he's he's reacting that way before that even happens before she even gets the crown I think that a, a choice to do this leaving Damon's character out of it a storytelling choice to do this is to underline the ways in which Rhaenyra's gender this this box that she has been placed in um the exact box her mom was placed in that she feared and did not you know like her whole life that she has like found happiness as a mother that this hasn't been a horrific traumatic we've already seen a birth from her but in this key crucial moment she is kept out of the room because of her gender specifically and um so i think him being able to go forth with his plans at the exact same time that she is stuck in her, trapped in her room and can only send her like teenage son to try to sort of like ineffectually speak on her behalf, I think is a really key uh, underlining of this long time struggle for Rhaenyra with her own gender. What's like the opening note of the series? It's Rhaenyra arriving from her flight on Dragonback and going to see her mother who says the childbed is our battlefield. And for that to be so fully at the fore for Rhaenyra at a literal dawning of war, a moment when the men in her life are gathering and amassing around the painted table to talk about how to take that battle. 
battlefield. And she cannot be there to be a part of it. Yeah, all of those themes from the entire season are, are present in that moment. So another really disappointing stretch from Damon. <laughs> really? I mean, because you can, like, the, like Joe said, like hearing the screams echoing through. And it, it of course, it connects also to, to Emma and Viserys and, and Balon as well because... We go to the funeral where we're, of course, thinking back to seeing little Balon on the pyre, seeing Emma on the pyre. And for that to also be the moment, that moment of loss and grief and despair that Rhaenyra is crowned, is there a more absolutely unmooring but apt encapsulation of this character's journey than that. It's also something That's where you could make blood. the argument that losing that child prepares her to lose another one. That like that there is there's that this show is at least asking us to make these connections between what she endures in childhood and what she, it what it basically prepares her for as queen. Like that to me at least that's what the show is putting forward. I don't know necessarily that I would I would personally agree with that or write it that way but the fact that they essentially make her ascension happen at the funeral of her baby is not an accident you know it wasn't just oh out of convenience let's also put this here i also thought you know mal to your point about her mother and uh you know her brother's death in the first episode that's also where she like kind of starts flirting with damon <laughs> i mean that was like a, that was like when they start speaking valerian to each other and you can tell that there's like They've had Not their little vibes, necklace handover yeah. before then, but yeah. Yeah, these these two in a funeral, sure. Um it's also key that like this is this would have been her first daughter, like, and that's another parallel with her mm -hmm. father who was waiting his first son. Like this was going to be her first daughter. She was gonna name it Visenya, which is the name she picked out for her brother when she thought her brother was a sister. It's it's horrifying. And it's, it's interesting. It's very different from the book where like Rhaenyra gets a 300 strong coronation, like a cool pomp and stir, not like a sad funeral. I know. It's like the dirty windy. desert there for yeah. her. Yeah. It's tough. That was, I, I thought that scene was really, the, the, the funeral turned coronation was like, I, I was shaking watching that. I thought it was that very was effective. Yeah, Damon, yeah, Damon very, holding very holding the crown, like that beat that he takes of the crown, you know? Even just like, again, if we think about 9 and 10, and like, I thought 10 was a much stronger episode overall than 9, but if we think about them as pairs and as this like joint finale, like we talked a lot last week about the the import and heft of the symbol of Aegon taking Aegon the Conqueror's crown and having Blackfire, like it's an equally potent symbol for Rhaenyra to have not only Jaehaerys the conciliator's crown, but Viserys her father's, right? Because you have the conqueror's iron crown as this symbol of conquest. What more fitting crown for a usurper to wear, but also the one who's trying to convince the, the, the realm, yeah, I'm the right one in this line of men and conquerors that you've come to accept in your land. The, the, the crown of the peaceful kings on Rhaenyra's head as she exercises a restraint that almost no one else, maybe save Rhaenyse, is capable of, is really powerful, as is, of course, the symbol that, okay, I'm reminding you all that I am the one that Viserys chose, and here's the proof on my head. 
I am glad you mentioned that it's Viserys's crown because I think like more casual viewers may not really understand the crown situation if you're not tracking the crowns closely. But like the idea that Eric Cargill, our our favorite Eric, uh, <laughs> the number, like, number one Eric <laughs> of this podcast, like the last we saw the crown, it was resting on Viserys's gooey rotting body. Like you know, Allison put it there, so he went in and snatched the crown, yeah. like stole. Hope the, someone yeah. wipe that down yeah. with a little Clorox wipe, yeah, or a little bit of like vinegar at least, something like that. Uh, you know, but like stole the crown for like what better sign of loyalty i did a i did a heist for you a crown yeah. heist they did a coup i did a heist yeah <laughs> i love a heist you know that uh, it, it does yeah. seem like basically in this show the men can either conquer or quit but the women actually govern mm. you know like it, it's like allison and Rhaenyra and renice are actually interested in what's what how do we plot a way forward and how do we form alliances or make sure people get what they need and get what they want, but also do what we ha- what they have to do? And then the guys are just like, I either want to fucking destroy everything or I'm going to go back to Pentos. Because that brings us to this other scene I wanted to discuss, which is Renes and Corliss. Corliss is like, you were right. I was wrong. Let's <laughs> retire with our grandkids and chill out. And Renes yeah. is just like, no, I like, I recognize my soul in this woman and she's the only one who's going to like kind of bring peace to this place instead of just burning it to the ground over and over again. I thought that was really interesting. Now, I don't necessarily know that the show has shown us Rhaenyra's amazing touch with, with like bringing people together and how the realm will like benefit from her rule. But I thought that that was like a really interesting scene uh, Mal, what, what did you think of, of Corliss's revival and and Rhaenys and, and him kind of having this conversation about like, is it is it better to run away or die trying to build a better world? Mm-hmm. So two things. Uh, quickly in terms of the big picture before zeroing in on them specifically, I thought this episode did a really good job of something that is crucial heading out of season one into season two in the Dance of the Dragons, which is reminding us how many other houses are in the realm and that their allegiance matters, that winning them to your cause and being able to trust in that allegiance once you've won it is as important as the dragons that you're flying on. And so a house like House Valarian the fleet, the wealth, everything we've spent an entire season learning about, it had to be relevant here at the end. In terms of the specific positions that the characters are taking, you know, we've been away from our guy Corliss for a minute and he's suffered a grave wound and a fever of the blood. And, you know, he's been through a a crucible as have so many characters. So if he wants a rest, who am I to judge? They were apart for so long. And I love Six years. Six years. The first thing Rainice said to him was like, dude, you bailed. Yeah. We lost our family and you left. And that is fucking hideous. And Renice has spent all of this time. But now like a, the triarchy is crushed. <laughs> I know, Chris, I have to say, I'm shocked you didn't lead the pod. I was saving it for the end. That was, was my, that was my uh, triarchy my, update of the week. My first text to Chris was the triarchy, man. It's happening. Your favorite. It's Your all for you, Chris. Favorite. It's all for you. Oh, man. This relationship between Rhaenyra and Renice has never been easy. And that's been one of the things that's been sad for us as viewers, but is ultimately, I think, true to life, right? You're not necessarily like 
just gonna align because we think you should for X number of reasons. Renice has a code. Renice has principles. Sometimes they are confounding to us, including murdering legions of small folk by exploding through the floor of the dragon pit and then being like, and then be like, what we need is to bring peace to the realm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like thinking back, not only to the more recent exchanges in the Godswood, et cetera, during the petitions in episode eight, but like go back all the way to episode two, when Rhaenyra says, when I am queen, I will create a new order. What is Renisa's response to that? It's not like, fuck off. It's, I wish that could be true. And she pairs that desire with saying to her, like, here's the hard truth, which no one else will tell you. Men would sooner put the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. And so for Rhaenyra to be like an, an embodiment of at least a desire to try to find a different way, and I think particularly on the heels of what Re what Renice thought was a pretty hollow pitch from Alicent last week. We do not rule, but we may guide the men that do gently away from violence and sure destruction and instead toward peace. And it's like, what do you think peace looks like exactly if this is your plan? And so she's getting a different version of that from Rhaenyra. And it's not an easy choice for her to make. She doesn't bow at the coronation. She doesn't bend yeah. the knee at first, even though she looks down at her, grand at her granddaughters. She takes her time to get to that moment. I, I have a couple things I need to say about Renice really quickly. I think a, a big reaction that people have had to Renice's decision at the end of last week uh, <laughs> that I've seen is, well, of course she wouldn't do that because above all else, and this is a section from this section of Fire and Blood, no man or woman is as accursed as the Kinslayer, right? So you're not supposed to kill your kin. It's a bad thing that Ama did in this episode, right? Um that is part of it. But like when, when Rainey says it's not my war to start, then the question is exactly what she says to Corlys later, which is like, when he's like, let's, let's just hang out with our grandkids. And she's like, who do you think Jace is? He's heir to the throne. Also Bela, my ward, like my, maybe like the, the closest to me is supposed to marry him. So when she's like, this isn't my war, I was like, in what way is it not your war? Like in what way has it ever I not been I did think it was great war? when Corliss is like, but, but she killed our son. And, and, and Renice is like, shh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, I've worked through that speak. in a prior episode. <laughs> She's like, let the morphine drip take effect. And I, well, I had to wonder, and I don't like, based on last week when they decided that the reason the Renice decided to not torch Allison was because uh, she uh, recognized another mother in that moment. I wonder if that thinking extends to this episode where she sees Rhaenyra as a mother yeah. who's just lost a child. Maybe, And yeah. she's like, there's some common... I thought her line about like why she didn't do it to be like, there's probably going to be a war, but I'm not starting it. Made sense. Now... Then don't kill all the small folk. <laughs> Look. That's still you know? the part I just cannot accept. It just doesn't make uh, sense. Anyway, we're not talking about that episode. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering whether or not you felt like Renice, like given Rhaenyra's arc over the course of the episode where she obviously loses a child, first unsteadily is sort of running the, the painted board, but then as the episode goes on, gains more painted table. Yeah. You got table. it, buddy. There we are. <laughs> By the and way, then as the episode goes on, awesome. grows into this role <laughs> as not just like pretender to the crown, but actually queen. Yeah. If Renice feels like she like Rhaenyra's passed some sort of test, because obviously this is somebody that she has sort of had intermittent check-ins with over the years. 
somewhat hostile, somewhat, I think, in a mentor-protege way, and somewhat just kind of like checking in. But I, I was... I really wonder whether or not there was something that happened over the course of the episode. If you two thought this, and if you did, could you locate it? That yeah. made Renice say, this is the one who's going to lead us through. Because she doesn't know about the Song of Ice and Fire either. She's not like, oh, right. this is, this is we have to go with Rhaenyra because she's the one who's going to protect us from the North at some point. She's just like, I, I'm, I'm throwing my lot in with this person. What, why was that? Why did she do that? I think, and this is like, this is a parallel that Molly and I were talking about just like based on trailer footage we saw last week, but it's a key moment in season seven, episode two of Game of Thrones where they talk about Daenerys Targaryen being queen of the ashes. How are we going to mm-hmm. take King's Landing? I will not be queen of the ashes. And in this episode, Rhaenyra says, I will not be queen of ash and bone, which is a paraphrase line from Fire and Blood. But I think that's the moment of like, when when Rainey says men would sooner put the realm to the yeah. torch than see one on the Iron Throne, and Rhaenyra's like, I'm not going to burn this, you know. Yeah. Uh, Rainey's queen of not burning things last week is like, oh, here's another person who doesn't want to burn something down. Like, that's all these men... And I think Renice has a low opinion of these men, but all these men are standing around the table talking about moving things around like they're pieces on a chessboard, right? Right. And Rainier is the only one in the room actually thinking about the the people involved. And maybe Renice, who crushed 100,000 small folk, <laughs> is not the person who should be thinking about that. Exactly. But I people- think... That no, rules a couple. Well, it's what is it? Eighty thousand? It looks like yeah. Irving Watson. You know, like kind of just like I a, don't know. It's <laughs> a couple many hundreds. I mean, I think it's, you can I, see the concrete flying. It's still, yeah, still a lot of carnage. I think it's Queen of Ash and Bone. What do you think, Mallory? I was thinking of the same season seven Dragonstone uh, War Council and and specifically Olena's conversation with Danny after yeah. peace never lasts, my dear. Will you take a bit of advice from an old woman? He's a clever man. Your hand. I've known a great many clever men. I've outlived them all. You know why I ignored them. Now we rewatch Game of Thrones and that ends with you're a dragon, be a dragon, and we're like, let's hit the brakes on that and talk. So let's workshop it a bit. But I still think that Olena, Danny, Rhaenys, Rhaenyra parallel of looking around and seeing a bunch of men who had made who have made the same mistake time and time again is is very palpable there. Like, and speaking of men making the same mistakes, I mean, I know Chris, you mentioned the withered cock already, but. Otto showing up here is just unbelievable. Well, like I had my jaw on the floor. I mean, it's Orwell in the book, and he's here too. But the, how did uh, Allison? How did Allison let that happen? Because like I mean, Allison's probably like, if my dad gets killed, that's like a win-win for me. <laughs> I was just like, this is the worst person to send on this diplomacy mission. It's Terrible. shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And we, I mean, listen. We're talking about, oh my God, I can't believe person X made it out of scene Y alive. We saw Damon wave the white parlay flag and then annihilate our guy Krabby, the crab feeder. I was I, obviously he tries. He draw, you know, draws draws steel and would be delighted to to kill Otto right there. But I couldn't believe <laughs> that Otto showed up, made the pitch, and that he made it out alive. And it was just great symmetry, not only with the Damon Otto, even like Damon saying, "Chris, your favorite line, Mummer's farce." Damon said it this time. That wasn't and Otto my favorite line in him. this episode. It was <laughs> definitely him calling Aegon a drunken cunt. <laughs> you you loved 
talking about Mummer's Farces. So for Damon to like throw that back in Otto's face, for Rhaenyra to land on the bridge on Cyrax again, we had it, you know, the different moment, obviously with the Kingsguard Oath, but Caraxes uh, hovering above in an intimidating post, like all Cyrax on the other side of the bridge now. You know yeah. what I mean? So I think Cyrax should have been a little bigger. Just throwing that out there. Uh, but also, we can get to dragon stuff in a second. Oh no, I have a drag. I have a dragon stuff I have to talk about really quickly, okay. which is like it's a it's very important that Rhaenyra is not able to get on a dragon at this moment because she just went through horrific labor. That's like a plot point. That's like why. Jason Luke have to go instead of her. And she just hopped on Cyrax and flew down to the dragon con- confab. Uh, I don't know. Let's talk pray, about, let's talk for about her Luke. body. Yeah. I want to talk about Luke a little bit here. Okay. We lost him. That was tough. Uh, Rhaenyra probably going to rethink doing that. Although I, I would imagine that what she's really like that, that just solidifies like if she spent this entire episode trying to think of a way forward diplomatically, I would imagine that this would put her in a slightly more, hawkish position uh, after this episode. She certainly looked to have changed in that last shot. But any final notes about Luke Targaryen dash strong? Because Valerian, how dare you? Corlys worked so hard to secure that surname. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm I'm not really as interested in Luke as much as I want to talk about where this leaves Jace because I thought it was pretty interesting that Damon takes Jace to this loyalty test that that there seems to be a little bit of a connection between Damon and Jace. And where does this like leave him both in terms of like pecking order, but also like now that his brother is gone, like what what do you, do, do you think it's just blood oath time for Eamon? I, w- I was trying to make sense of that for um, like what the purpose of that scene was. And I think it's meant to be again, a parallel to episode nine where Otto and Alicent are having their like fight over Aegon. It's sort of like Rhaenyra is like, Rhaenyra talking to Jace is nothing should be done without my consent, right? Like, don't don't let them do anything while I'm in here doing this. And then later, the vow that she makes Luke and Jace swear, which is you're just messengers, like swear on this book, and you don't don't lift a finger. You are just messengers. You're well, messengers light of, of the peace. seven. Uh, but the, the uh, funny thing was that like Jace is like, like Luke is like. Yeah, I won't lift a finger. Like, I don't even have to go. Like, <laughs> like you can send a rake. Can we send Bela? Yeah. He's like older than me and probably better on a dragon. Um, and then I, so I sort of felt it as like a, a like a battle for Jace's temperament, right? Like, Damon's like, no, you're a dragon, and this is what we do. This is how we uh, secure loyalty, and this is this is how we operate. So, sort of like a little stepdad. Uh, mom sort of light duel over Jace's nature was my interpretation. What do you think, Mal? You guys remember in <laughs> episode six when Viserys and Lionel were watching the training in the yard from the yeah. battlements and Viserys was like, this is the stuff, Lionel. They'll <laughs> <laughs> certainly form a lifelong bond. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and Lionel was like, you know what I'm not scared of? Fire. <laughs> Back to that moment with some aching in my heart uh, watching this episode. In Fireblood, so we hear that, that Luke is 14 in this episode. He's 13 in the text. The prince was 13 years of age. His body was never found. And with his death, the war of ravens and envoys and marriage packs came to an end and the war of fire and blood began in earnest. That's because so, he got digested with a dragon prilosec. <laughs> <laughs> High up in the skies. Vagar was like, uh, I am no. going to need a digestive. I just ate a kid. I thought Boy. that kid was, I thought, I thought that kid was, the kid who's playing Luke did an incredible job in this episode. 
Really good. Like, can't wait to get out of Storm's End. Can't wait to get out of the room. Didn't want to really be involved in any of this in the first place. Doesn't want to be the Lord of Driftmark. Doesn't want any of it. And that's like a, I think, Chris, like your, your question about is about both Jace and Luke. And I think like it's worth it's worth thinking about the fact that they want different, they wanted different things. Like we saw Jace earlier around the painted table studying his Valerian and working, working, working to prove his worth. Now I will say in fire, what does he do around the painted board? That's what everybody wants to know. (laughs) Good old painted board. You know, Luke in the book is like, they think we're strong. And when they see us arrive on dragons, they're going to be like, Oh yeah. They're Targaryen. So, this and like, like Valarian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Jace is studying and training. And so whether he's hearing, whether he's like getting that call to the side from Damon or getting that reminder from Rhaenyra that whatever claim is left to me, like I'm paraphrasing, right? But whatever claim is left to me, you are the heir to it. He has a, a level of expectation of pressure placed on him that... Luke is feeling and voicing to Rhaenyra he feels, but that is a a kind of just different calculus in his life. But that second son's idea that's also been this through line of the season, Mm. like in a way, it's one of the most central driving forces of the show. And in a way, I feel like I'm like Rhaenys and Rhaenyra and the gods would. Like, what does it matter? Because part of the point is at the end, everybody's in the same place. They've all been caught in that same swirling storm. Like they're all a part of the dance now. And you I can't I just keep it once it's happened. I just want to say, if you're sitting at home and you're like, but Chris, Mallory, Joanna, what the hell was Rhaenyra thinking sending literal children out as messengers on Dragonback? What was this about? It's I will tough. just say in the book, it it seems a little less unreasonable because she's like, they first they were going to send all three and she's like, how about not the toddler? Let, yeah, Joff, right. stay Let Joff not go, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Damon was off doing something else. She's incapacitated. Bela and Raina are like not in the conversation, you know? So it's sort of like they make the most sense in that context. Some of that context is removed here. And so you're just like, why are you sending this obviously timid child and his tiny dragon? So, Joe, you're asking, you mentioned that the difference in the book I did a little research. <gasps> and is, is it tr- no, well, is it true in the book? Is Boros Baratheon slightly less dickish in the books? Like, is he a little no. bit more like, no. okay. Definitely okay. not. He's All a right. huge piece of garbage. I think he's but more he is like, sexist. nobody, you can't, yeah. he, was, he is like, you can't kick this kid's ass in my house though. Right? Yes. Okay. But that's, but that's like, that's because he doesn't want any right. culpability. Yeah. Yeah. And to and violate. Yeah, exactly. Guest rights. Guess what, sort of Boros? Like, I think you're going to have some culpability <laughs> on your hands. Rhaenyra <laughs> had taken House Baratheon gra- uh, for granted for too long, his lordship told Aemon. He literally is just like, and that's, I mean, that's a, so like, Rainies is the one who says in the book, Rainies is the one who's like, Baratheons love me. And we got that moment between Borm and Baratheon and Rainies in the first episode. She's like, no, wor- this is going to be an easy job for Luke. It's a puddle jumper flight over to Storm's End. No problem. Like, we did not know that Vakar and Eamon were going to be there. also a puddle jumper's flight from King's Landing. <laughs> that, Just first, that first shot of Vagar, like looming behind yeah, the and castle. Yeah, and, and when he Chilling. appears above him, Oh, yeah. She, Chris. She, when she appears above him, I'm what, sorry. Did it, <laughs> did it give you more? Mal and I had this little mini argument. Did it give you more uh, T-Rex in the rain, Jurassic Park, or Godzilla in the rain in like, T-Rex. Tokyo? 
Jurassic T-Rex. Park. Yeah. I thought Godzilla. I thought, I thought, just think about like that shadow, like just the it's silhouette. A way, it's the way like she rears up, oh, like yeah. and with the wall in front of her. It's just sort of like an, and like Luke shows up and he's like, oh no, that's Eamon's car. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> like, God. I know. Like, you know what else was great about that sequence, by the way, that pays off uh, a season long trend? Like all this talk about marriages and mm-hmm. the political capital of being able to offer up a marriage pact. And Luke is like, wasn't prepared for what inev- inevitably would have been the question. Oh my god! Why didn't they? Why didn't they put Joff on the table? Why didn't they say we have a toddler at home? And a it's perfectly because, good because toddler. Luke, because Luke it's is not exactly. Billy Bean. He's like okay. No, that's I will tell you my mommy your answer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like that's what Joe's been saying for episodes. For episodes now is like you really feel how young they are. Yeah, you really yeah. feel. Like he's just like all right. Good can, I come, pick. can I wait? Can I just say one quick thing about? Uh, Notorious friend of women, Boros Baratheon. This is this is the passion oh, fire oh. blood I would like to read. He had nothing against women. Lord Boros went on to say he loved his girls. A daughter is a precious thing, but a son. Ah, uh, should the son the gods ever grant him a son of his own blood? Storm's Edward pass to him, not to his sisters. Why should the Iron Throne be any different? Um, As a father of daughters, Boris Baratheon yeah, thinks women are fine. Big time girl dad. I, there's a bunch of things else that, there's a bunch of other things that happen in this episode. Damon singing. Uh, there, there's a few things I'm sure you guys are going to get to it. Vermithor. We saw Vermithor. That's Jaharis' dragon. That was incredible. Chris, you were like, that's Vermithor, right? Yeah, I did want to ask. <laughs> you could tell by the dental records that that was Vermithor, right? Boris Baratheon cannot read, right? Yeah, correct. I hope that comes up a lot. That's canonical. That's canonical. He means his maester. (laughs) That is, that rules. They gave Luke no prep. They didn't say, don't hand the illiterate lord a scroll. Like, that was not the move. Uh, Have a marriage, like, offer ready. You know, take Bela with you. She'll back you up. Like, it could have gone really differently. So you two will definitely dive deep into this episode on House of R. So whatever scenes we didn't cover, you guys can grab there. But I did want to hit one or two questions about the season in general, because this is this is the finale. This is also the finale for this iteration or season of Talk the Thrones. And it's been such a delight talking with you. But <laughs> uh, Mal, what was your favorite moment from the season? Uh, my, I have a, a tie. I'm torn between two picks, which is, uh, the eye for an eye sequence, the showdown at Driftmark and Viserys's long walk into the throne room. Those are my, my top two. I think I'm going to go with Viserys's long walk, which was just an arresting and the heart wrenching stretch of television. I think we all have really one was a of, treat to watch. I think we're all pretty much like this might be a consensus. We might have a quorum here. Joe, what did you you thought it was the did long you think walk. It, the long walk? Okay. Yeah. I think it was now that now they see you as who you really are. Eye for an eye. I mean both of those scenes involve like everyone everyone, right? Because like when we see Viserys to his long walk, you see Alicent and Aemond and Aegon and Helena and Jason Balin Rant like and Rainies, they're all and they're all taking it in. And same with eye for an eye. You've got everyone in the room there. And it's a microcosm of of sort of these bigger things that are happening. Did you so. two have a favorite character to watch over the course of the season? Joe? That's a tough episode for me to say this. But David I was going to take the heat for I was going to say David first. Would have been the easy pick before this episode, undoubtedly, right? Sure. I'm it's, sorry it's Matt, Matt Smith gets the best lines. 
is is definitely Emma, having Emma Darcy's really on the rise though has only has had far fewer episodes but Emma Darcy in this episode was so incredible and so um and I'm really interested to see what happens after the facial expression we got at right. the end of this episode so yeah. yeah looking forward to next season which hopefully will come next year although I have my concerns uh, I hope so I don't want to uh, wait <laughs> I can't, I mean, I, I can't I go back awesome. to a thronesless life now that we have have it back. I can't. What will I do? Joe, is there <laughs> one thing, not like plot spoiler, but like like just vibe-wise that you're yeah. really looking forward to in the second season? <laughs> well, okay. So I will say something that we've been saying a lot on um, House of Art, the deep dives, is that we felt like these time jumps that they were doing was because they were trying to speed up to and hit the battle over Shipbreakers Bay by the end of the season. And they felt like they had to sort of like, they wanted to start where they started and that just meant they had to like hop decades sometimes or six years or whatever the case may be. So next season, now that we're in it, the Dance of the Dragons, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say, is only two years. And so like the characters that we have, we're not going to be hopping through time aggressively, we think, anymore. There might be some, but like nothing major. And it's just a lot of dragon battles. And so we're going to have these like peaks, you know, every couple episodes set pieces. Like for the next, you know, big set pieces. Yeah. And then a lot of, um, as Mallory alluded to earlier, you asked for one thing, I'm giving you five, uh, like spreading out of the map. You're like, Jace is, Jace is going to go up to the Vale. And then after that, he's planning to go up to Winterfell. So that's really exciting. Uh, and then Damon's talking about going to Harrenhal. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of places on the map that we're going to go to a lot of houses. So we're going to break. So like a lot of those critiques that people have of the season, which are the time jumps and how insular inside one family, inside one location it felt is not going to be the case uh, going forward. It so would be I think fascinating that's... to get to the end of this series and be like, was season one, season zero? Mm. You know, mm. now what are you looking forward to next season? Uh, the widening of the map, the widening of the world, uh, you know, Jace up, up to the Vale and to Winterfell. Delightful. Can't wait. Like, truly cannot wait. And similarly, it'll shock you to hear the introduction of even more dragons into our story. <laughs> we got a moon dancer shout out in this episode. I love yeah, the, it. The dragon mount mount like was really hotly into tipped. The, we didn't get to see the it. Dragon, into the dragon mount. We did. It's, David is going in. Oh, that's where to, he is? Oh, I <laughs> yeah. thought that was just like his usual parking spot for the dragon. <laughs> oh, I just want to say really quickly, I think some people are confused and they think that that wasn't Vermithor. They thought that like Damon was messing with Vagar. Those are two different dragons. I know, Chris, that you know that. Vagar uh, being Eamon's dragon? Yeah, Eamon's enormous dragon Okay, that, that we saw at Storm's End. That's the only place we ever saw Vagar. The dragon that Damon was crooning to is Vermithor. It's a different dragon. Okay. Um, so... He has not like I think I saw some people who thought that like Damon provoked Vagar to but fight Arax over Shipbreakers Bay because he wanted to start a war. But I'm just here to tell you those are two different. Oh, dragons. like it was a false flag operation? Right. Sheesh. No. Yeah. Just uh, trying to clear that up. No. We're getting some interesting pupil reflections and and morphing as Vermithor and Damon stare into each other's eyes and Damon sings in High Valerian and attempts to uh What do you mean by lock that? down even more dragons? Like the literal shot of their eyes. I was Does like, that mean is that, that they're like they're they're like locked in with each other or what? Well, 
That's what happens when I stare at Mallory when we podcast. <laughs> yeah, so. or our our pupils melt into each other and we become yeah. well, I think we, and we, we, we do three AirPods. Earlier in the episode where Nira giving birth and, and shot, cutting like, to cutting between, Yeah, it's Cyrax yeah, screaming. Exactly. So. so like that's that's part of what I'm really looking forward to too is the continued expansion of the canon and the mythology around dragon riding and dragon binding. Is that just like I'll have to rewatch this again. I've seen it once. Like we see a reflection of Damon in Vermithor's eye and then we see, we zoom in on Damon's pupil and we can see it's just a reflection reinforcing this theme, uh, uh, Targaryens, dragons, et cetera. But is there actual magic afoot there with what he was singing in that song? Who knows what he found in those books when he was studying? He's bound to a dragon already. There's no precedent for any link with a second dragon for one rider, but dragon binding is something that is studied and sought after. So this larger question of how to bring more dragons into the fold, I can't wait for more of that next year. I'm so excited next season. David Peterson, who does all the Valyrian for the show, posts like the translation of all the Valyrian every week. Oh. Um, so I'm pretty sure that the translation of the song is, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Vermeer Four is more of a 1975 fan, but I, I, I like that joke. That's really good. Um, it's been such a pleasure t- chatting with you, uh, chatting with you two this season. Thank you to Steve Allman for producing us. You can listen to. I can only imagine how deep of a deep dive is going to happen on House of R. We have a lot to t- talk about Tuesday. Uh-huh. Andy and I will be talking about this show tomorrow. Um, what a what a great ride! And I can't. I really do hope that they come back 2023. If Succession's coming back in the spring. Bring bring this back in in the fall. Let's try let's, let's try it. and turn it around. And Thanks get those Steve. spinoffs going. Tap, hell yeah, yeah, hell yeah, yeah. Let's. I want to. I want to have like reading Rainbow with Boris Baratheon and like all of his like <laughs> all of his English teachers over the years who tried to get him into great works of yeah. literature. Let's see if like Shireen a, can time travel. Kind of like a Finding great. Forester with with Robert Barath- uh, with Boris Baratheon. Okay, we're gonna wrap it up there. House of R on Tuesday, The Watch tomorrow. Thank you to Steve. Thank you to Arjuna. Thank you to everybody who worked on the show this year. Thanks to everybody who listened. We'll be back next season, hopefully. Talk to you soon. Bye.